Millennials and gentlemen, it gives us great pleasure to have a Rosemont dog. The man who is younger than all of us here at the home, but I'm sure you'd like to hear his words once again. Ladies and gentlemen, the man of the hour. Thank you. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, Phil. I see you over there. Francine, the Vichy Swaz was delicious. Thank you. Thank you for being here to welcome me back because it was so unfair that I was left out of the 1970s 100 show. And the letters and cards I got from all of you down the hall here were just wonderful. So I want you to know that I'm plotting my revenge against Bob. He's going to get his. He's going to get his. In the meantime, it's ankle locks and arch supports. It's the outdated wrestling hour. Yeah. back and so are we hi everybody this is bob smith i think you remember me from my pro wrestling illustrated days and whatnot anyway this is the return of the outdated wrestling hour with bob smith we did have that little one week hiatus all kinds of things were going on here covid entered our household busy 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 at the same time and a sick pet i just needed to Recharge the batteries. Every so often you feel that way, and we have the luxury of being able to take a week off whenever we feel like it. But we're glad you followed us back here. And I'm glad that Michael Morsch has followed us back. He was on one of our most popular shows last year, talking about the AWA. It was our first of three AWA shows. Now he's going to kind of segue over into the Central States territory and give us some fond memories of all the fun he had as a younger person enjoying the territories. I myself am relatively unfamiliar with the Central States. I've only seen them on videotape. And by the time I ended up with PWI, they were just about at death's door as a territory. So I'll learn a little bit tonight, and I hope you do too. we got some special announcements to make at the end of the uh, program here before we get into talking with uh, Mike. First of all, we'll take a little break, a little commercial announcement, and we'll get right into a nice discussion with a very nice gentleman, Mr. Mike Morris. We'll be right back.
Ladies and gentlemen, Wrestling Fans International Association is back. That's right, the premier fan club association of the 1970s and 1980s has been revived and is back in business. Join today. It's free at the WFIA.org. That's T-H-E-W-F-I-A.org. You can also join us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash groups slash WFIA 1969. Well, last year, not long after the debut of this particular old-timer podcast, someone of my approximate age group came on the show from the recommendation of Craig Peters, my old friend from Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Mike is uh, Mike Morish, our guest here, is a, a good friend of Craig, and now I feel that Mike's a good friend of mine, too. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bob. It's a, it's a pleasure. I enjoyed our first chat, and I'm looking forward to this one. Yes, and um, we're going to talk about something a lot, of, a lot of people don't even talk about anymore, but that's the idea of the show. We look back with fondness and gratitude toward our wrestling heroes when we were younger. That's basically the underlying theme of this program. And tell me, this, this show's about Central States Wrestling, or you know, for a while it was called the Heart of America Sports Attractions or something like that. How did you segue, because your previous show was on the AWA. AWA, yeah. Now, tell me what time period this was, how old you were, and how you segued from your AWA fandom into becoming a pretty good Central States fan. Well, it was I was just starting college, so it would have been 1977. Um, I grew up in Peoria, Illinois, which was AWA territory, and we got the television show out of Minneapolis. Um, But I went off to Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa, which is just north of Des Moines, Iowa. and. I don't recall as a kid reading the uh, Aptor magazines, <clears throat> named after our good friend Bill Aptor. I don't recall much about the Central States territory uh, from the magazines. So when I got to a different state six hours from home and was watching a, a different television channel, uh, I, I, of course, you know, was gonna, I was going to see what the wrestling was in that area, and it was Central States. Um, out of a television station based uh, in, De- in Des Moines. Um, so in 1977. So when I first got to Iowa, all the wrestlers uh, were, were new to me, essentially, for the most part, with, with some exceptions. But Central States, I, I, you know, I wouldn't call it a minor league, but it wasn't, it didn't strike me as the same talent level as the AWA and the NWA uh, and the, and what was then the WWWF uh, that I had read about in the magazines and witnessed myself. Uh, but I ended up loving the Central States uh, wrestlers, and, and I would often go to Des Moines, which was a half-hour drive from Ames, to Veterans Auditorium in Des Moines, a big, big old barn of, of a place. Uh, and... Back then, for six, I, th- I believe six bucks, you could sit in the chairs right by the ring. And uh, when I used to go to the w, uh, the AWA cards in, in Peoria, I never sat close to the ring or very seldom. If, uh, but I always, you know, managed to scrounge up six bucks as a college kid. <laughs> I think I was making five dollars a story at the Ames Tribune when I was writing freelance stories at the Ames Tribune. So I had to write at least two stories to get my wrestling ticket, uh, my gas to. Des Moines and, and, and a program. Mm-hmm. 
uh, for for uh, for the evening. And once a month, they'd come to Des Moines, and you know the crowds were not overwhelming, but uh, the the enthusiasm was like I remembered from Peoria. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, Central States had some affiliations with the NWA. Uh, Central States had its stable of wrestlers, but in Des Moines, which was a decent crowd, um, they were ba- Central States is based in Kansas City, and their two main draw areas were Kansas City and St. Joseph, Missouri. Um, but they also had they would also bring in for Des Moines shows. They would bring in Harley Race, who uh, was uh, had a nice run as NWA champion in mm-hmm. the uh, Central States. Um, Race also eventually, I believe, and I, I want to say around 1973, had become owner had become an owner of the Central States with uh, Texas Bob Geigel and Pat O'Connor. They were the three owners and bookers for for the Central States. So, but the Central States roster was was full of people I didn't know and ended up <laughs> uh, really loving. Uh, one of the characters was. Uh, a guy by the name of Bulldog Bob Brown. Mm-hmm. And they called him Bulldog. He was short and squat, and he had just a flat nose, like he had been punched over and over again in his nose. He just had a flat nose. He looked like a bulldog. And he was a mainstay in Central States. He he I he might sneak down to St. Louis to uh, wrestling at the Chase under Sam Munchnick every once in a while to be on the undercard. But in... in uh, in central states he was a he was a a local main a local mainstay i would call him they they would alternately turn him face and heel as demanded in fact there was one time he, he i thought he was a better heel than he was a face uh but you, and, you make a good point because I, every time i think of bulldog Bob Brown, i think he was both a heel and a face depending on what year it was or what the angle was going on at that point yeah yeah, and there was a there was an angle he did with Bruiser Brody, where Bulldog was actually a heel and Brody was the face. Right. And at the time, Bulldog was managed by Slick. You remember Slick, who eventually, I believe, made it to the WWE. Or the, at, using that name? Yeah, yeah. I, I had no earthly idea. Wow. Yeah, there's, some, there's some YouTube videos of, of Bulldog and Slick. And Bulldog did most of the talking. Slick didn't even do a lot of the talking like he eventually would. Mm-hmm. But I think Slick got his managerial uh, teeth in in Central States. You know, but before you continue, I have to I have to reiterate something which I find one of the one of the most fascinating parts of your particular wrestling fandom because you know you actually got started actually covering the AWA in right. uh, your hometown. But I, I want you to recant one more time how lucky you were to live in a certain area because if you went any one of four or five different directions, you were close to a different wrestling organization. Do I remember that correctly? Yes. Uh, growing up near Peoria, Illinois, Peoria itself was AWA territory. If you went north in Illinois to Rockford, Illinois, which is between the Quad Cities and Chicago, that was still AWA territory, as was the Quad Cities, which is Moline-Davenport area. Uh, between Iowa and Illinois. But if you went east of Chicago, uh, of Rockford, Illinois, to Chicago, there was a promotion, Bob Loose Wrestling, mm-hmm. who was loosely affiliated with Dick the Bruiser, who ran the Indianapolis Territory. Consequently, 
Bruiser would sneak down to St. Louis and Chicago to work with Luce in Chicago and to work with Sam Muchnick down in St. Louis. So Bruiser made, would cross over into the NWA at that time. And then if you went further west to Des Moines, then you got the central and, and Kansas City, you had got the central states. So Peoria was almost like centrally located. Yeah. And even, you could almost even get to Detroit where the Sheik, the original Sheik, was was uh, the owner, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, although I never did. It wouldn't have been out of the question if you wanted to drive up to the matches in Detroit. It was maybe six hours, you know, mm-hmm. five hours, six hours. Um, so right in the heart of Illinois there, you were in, the, in you could go a lot of different areas, a lot of different directions and see a lot of different wrestling. That, that's amazing. It really is. Because, you know, most, for, for a kid like me in the Albany, New York area, you had triple wf and that was it i mean there was there was no alternative and the fact that you could see so many different stars from so many different areas <laughs> just by jumping in your car too cool man at, at your age that must have been a blast it was and you know um there's a couple of interesting stories that i recall i had at at age 18 i had not yet figured how blading worked how they worked blading the wrestlers I couldn't quite tell how they did it. And it was actually Bulldog Bob Brown who I first saw Blade. Mm-hmm. And I had I had a, a, the, the proverbial front row seat. I was sitting in the front row, and I was four feet from Brown, who had been thrown out of the ring. And I actually saw him reach into his trunks, pull out the blade, cut himself, and put the blade back in his trunks. I was four feet from him. I saw the whole thing. And I thought, oh, that's how they do it. I, that's... That's how they create the illusion of of the injury. Well, so if you notice back in the day, it would usually, well, not usually, but many times occur when the wrestler's knocked out in the out outside the ring near the apron. Meanwhile, the opponent would be in the middle of the ring, either being chastised by the referee. So your, your attention is, is looking into the ring as opposed to the floor. Which I gave the, the fellow on the floor a chance to uh, do his magic, shall we exactly. say? Exactly, and that's exactly how they controlled the crowd. And I, I guess maybe my early training as a reporter, <laughs> not to be observing things, might have served me well in that particular uh, aspect. There was one other story that I that I uh, that I loved from that era uh, before I left for college, uh, and I was when I was still watching the AWA. Um, I, let me back up. When I went to when I went to college, uh, the Central States had a, a big Russian wrestler by the name of Alexei Smirnov. I don't know if you know that name. I do know that name, and he was somebody else too, and I can't remember who it was. Yeah, as I, 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 I sit here, oh, you get into that? Okay, sorry. I don't mean to, I don't I want to jump that. your scoop. Okay, he was, he was actually, you know, the the prototypical uh, wrestling Russian. You know, bald headed, beard, mm-hmm. or the red trunks or tights. Uh, you know, and and tried to speak with the Russian accent during his promos. Um, the first time I went home from college at Christmas break, so I've been in Iowa for three months. I had seen Smirnoff on TV. I had seen him wrestle live in Des Moines. I went home, and I, I watched AWA for a little bit again. Got back to you know caught up on the AWA. And there was a wrestler in the AWA named Marcel Dubois. And it was Alexei Smirnov. It's the same guy wearing the same red trunks, having a French accent instead of a Russian accent this time. 
And I, I just thought that was <laughs> hilarious. I thought, you know what? I just came from a match two weeks ago where you were Lexi Smirnoff, and now you're on TV telling me you're Marcel Dubois. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a hoot. But oh, I, those old days when uh, you're right, territory to territory, you'd see the same guy with a different accent. Yeah. Or an entirely different name. You know, it was, that was kind of the fun of it back then, though. You know, saying, hey, I know who that guy is, right? Yeah. The the Central States heel faction, to me, were much more interesting than the faces. Well, go down. Who who did you see? Who do you remember from those years? The, the big heel manager from those years, there was two of them, actually. One in the late 70s and one in the early 80s. Um, the first one was Colonel Buckley Christopher Robley III. Oh, yeah. Okay. Buck Robley. Mm-hmm. Uh, always wore the arm pad like he you know, had a broken arm or something like that, and always used it as a weapon. His stable included uh, Bruiser Bob Sweetan, uh, Bobby Jaggers, and occasionally a guy by the name of Roger Kirby. Kirby was... Uh, a, Kirby was like Bulldog Bob Brown in that he stayed mostly in the central states, Missouri, St. Louis area. But they called him Nature Boy Roger Kirby. Uh, He had the blonde hair. He wasn't real good on the mic, but uh, a great worker and and played a great heel. Uh, But, you know, if you know anything about a fellow like uh, Bruiser Bob Sweetan, he ended up not being such a good human being and uh, had some legal troubles down the way. But he was a great heel in the central states. One of the worst stories I ever heard, which I will not recant here. I'm not going to talk about it, but I will say once I found out what kind of a person he was, it's just um, yeah, awful. We'll put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of the other heels, uh, Avalanche Buzz Tyler, uh, who I believe held the central states. Uh, championship for a, a, a run, a short run. Uh, Smirnoff was a heel. Uh, the faces at the time, um, you know, you, you maybe might find this hard to believe. A very young Kevin Sullivan uh, was a face. He he was a face in the East Coast too before he, he went bad. Yeah, in fact, he was solely a face okay. uh, in the WWF in the late seventies. Yeah, okay. Um, he had a tag team partner by the name of Ken Lucas, mm-hmm. uh, and they were Central States tag team champions. Um, occasionally, uh, like I said, Harley would show up to defend the title, and once a year in in Des Moines, we would get Andre the Giant as a special attraction. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and um, who else? Tom Andrews was a face. And then there were, you know, there were there were names that you wouldn't recognize. Now, the other heel manager toward the end of my run in Central States in the early 80s was a guy by the name of Gorgeous Gary Royal. Oh, okay. And he, had, he had an interesting stable. The two heels that he had at the time were Hercules Hernandez, who would, as we know, would go on to WWF fame for a while. Mm-hmm. And a fellow by the name of Dewey Robertson who we all know now uh, is the missing link. Mm-hmm. Uh, ended up being the missing link. Uh, he was much more entertaining as the missing link than he was as Dewey Roberts. <laughs> um, 
We would also see uh, in the central states the drill instructor, the DI, Bob Slaughter, who became mm-hmm. Sergeant Slaughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very young Ted DiBiase right. uh, would come through. And occasionally, uh, like Andre, once a year, we would see uh, short runs by Jerry Blackwell, Crusher Blackwell. Mm-hmm. Those are the, the guys that I mostly remember. Guy, Bob Geigel was the owner and promoter. Uh, I think he may have still been lacing them up then for a little bit. Uh, he would appear every once in a while. Uh, Sonny Myers, who was, um, I, I, I want to say he goes back to the 40s and 50s as a wrestler. By the time I saw Sonny Myers, he was a referee. Mm-hmm. So he was often the, the referee in Des Moines. And, you know, in that time period, I, I, I think I may have made it down to Kansas City for one big show. And I'm trying to remember who that on that card. I, I may have my timeline wrong on this, but I want to say... Uh, Terry Funk and Kamala and the Road Warriors were all on that on that card in Kansas City. I think they all had Funk was an NWA guy, but the other Kamala and the Road Warriors had had NWA runs uh, at a time. But, but from, the, from, from what I understand, the NWA had a, a good working relationship with Central States, no matter what period it was. Yeah. It's a place where their stars could have a, what they call a stop off match. Mm-hmm. Like if they're in between two bigger NWA cities, they could go into the central states and have a short run or do some TV promos or, you know, and it was always accepted and welcomed. I, I think everybody enjoyed the fact that they could get extra work by visiting the KC area. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, from KC, you you go to St. Joe's and then you, you go down to St. Louis, you go up to Des Moines. I believe they might have even uh, touched into Tulsa. I'm not sure if... Tulsa might have been part of their area. Um, I don't recall any Nebraska towns, but they must have been in eastern Nebraska there too, for for a little bit. I'm not sure, um, you know, where they might have been. Uh, but yeah, there was. I think within short driving distance, wrestlers could work four or five times a week with no with no trouble. Yeah, yeah. Now, what was the style? Was there a prevailing style? I always looked at it as. Well, to be honest, NWA-style wrestling, hard-hitting, no-nonsense, not a lot of goofiness, very little comedy, nothing like that. Am I reading that right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I don't know this for a fact, but I thought the first thing I noticed when I went from the AWA to the um, Central States was that the ring was smaller. I don't know that to be a fact, but it seemed like a smaller ring. On TV it did, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't have anything to back that up. That was just a, an opinion of a kid, you know, of an 18-year-old kid. Um, and it, there wasn't a lot of, I mean, this was before the area of, ent, you know, entrance music. And, mm-hmm. you know, aside from Ric Flair and, and Harley to a certain extent, there wasn't a whole lot of fancy ring robes and, and garb. The guys just came out in their, in their tights and, and went at it. It was... Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think it was just more of a workmanlike, uh, straight up, either scientific wrestling match or a brawl. Isn't, isn't it funny though how you think of the, what the ring looks like from the way it's photographed, the way it's, the camera is tilted? Like in the AWA for the longest time, as their studio show was shooting straight down, and yeah. it looked like it was the size of an Olympic pool. That that ring, right? It yeah. looked huge. Yeah. But if you looked at the East Coast, it was flat on the ring, straight at it. 
You do yeah. it through the ropes. Right. Whereas other areas, they did have a way of shooting from a higher angle looking down at it. I think that usually made the rings look either smaller or bigger, depending on how close that camera was to the ring. I Maybe they're... I don't think there's such a thing as a stationary wrestling ring, to be honest with you, because I've seen smaller rings, that's for sure. Yeah. And 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 as I recall, it, it seemed like they lit it differently. It, mm-hmm. it almost seemed to me like in, in the central states, in addition to a smaller ring, it was like they turned out the lights in the auditorium and they lit the ring with one light bulb. It, it, yeah. It seemed, it, it seemed kind of low lit. Oh, uh, but it worked though, didn't it? It absolutely worked. Oh, it was the same way in Albany. One one giant light over the ring. That was yeah. it. It was the whole lighting system. <laughs> yeah, but it worked. I mean, Those colors I, on their on their. I remember. I hate to hate the wax romantic, but I remember looking at their boots in the light. You know, like the, you'd see them on TV, but the, you'd see some guys had really cool boots with their initials on them or different colors or two tone. You know, and they were always shiny. Am I right? Always shiny. I was yeah. just going to say, always shiny. Yeah, no question mm-hmm. about it. Once in no a while, you get a veteran guy who did have, it looked like he wore the same pair of boots his entire career. But yeah. the younger guys really tried to make a fashion statement with their boots, I think. And that, that may have been, the boots may have been the first attempt at. Showmanship, yeah, in that yeah. regard. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, you know, at, at, at ring, yeah, ring garb. Yeah, the boots. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, some guys went for the just the the short the shorty short tights, and then some guys went for the one singlet or double singlet uh, trunks. Um, and it was all you know the bigger guys. You know, when a Crusher Blackwell came in, you had to wonder where he was getting his ring attire because guy was as big as half the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, Everybody but, bought a ticket to see him throw a drop kick, though. And it still amazed me when I see videos of that. that the me guy, too. Around mid seventies to about probably nineteen eighty, he could he could really get up there. Yeah, and I, that, I bought a, I bought a ticket to see him do it. I'm telling you, and of yeah. course he didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> In Albany, I said, you know, and I, you know, my, my wife is like, yeah, let's go. I want to see this guy throw a drop every TV match. They was, look at him get up there. So we bought our tickets, got our ringside seats, and we watched a five minute squash. And he didn't do it. He just fell on the guy. Boom. <laughs> was about well, that, is, that I just remembered at, at Des Moines, you could go, you could, if you turned your attention away from the ring and back toward where the locker rooms were, and mm-hmm. of course the heels were always in one locker room and the faces were in a different locker room. And if you found out where those were, they oftentimes after their matches or before their matches would come out and kind of stand mm-hmm. outside the locker room uh, and watch the current match that was in the ring. You could walk back there. With an eight by ten photo and your and your sharpie or your pen or whatever you had at the time, mm-hmm. and I got a lot of autographs. And they were approachable, standing outside the locker room. They didn't even the heels didn't growl at you when you went back and got an autograph. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I, I I don't recall seeing that in the AWA. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny because you know I talked to Joyce Poistian, who was who was who would. Ride the wrestlers around and did little odd jobs, you know, on you know on the QT for the wrestlers, and she thought they were very approachable in the AWA. You know, she said there were exceptions, but you know, she found Bobby Heenan to be a really great guy, Nick Bockwinkel, of course, to be a wonderful guy, you know, people like that. So I find it interesting that you find a difference between the two organizations in that regard. Now you could get you back in the early seventies, you could run down to the ring. 
and get an autograph once they entered the ring. They they would sign five or six mm-hmm. of them. Um, but yeah, I was never a unless I had a media credential and could get in the locker rooms in Peoria. The the wrestlers would not come out of the locker room uh, before their appearance. You uh, know, I hate to talk about Albany again because, but this is where I cut my teeth. They didn't allow any autographs, and I'll tell you why. It was such a heated, baby-faced town. Yeah. There were many attempts to exact revenge by the fans to certain wrestlers over the years. I hear of cars being set on fire, and you know, seriously, yeah. people people running after them in the parking lot and stuff like that. So they they kept a really good security team there, and they, you could get near to wrestlers because the fans were. Oh my gosh! When a heel went over, forget it. Yeah, Albany, you know, it's upstate, semi-rural. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was they hated they they hated their villains. I'm telling you. You know what? I'm not sure that Des Moines. I would classify Des Moines as either a face or a heel town. Arena, but mm-hmm. I will say this: whenever Harley Race showed up, no matter what angle he was working in the NWA, when he showed up as the champion, he was cheered in Des Moines. Either way. Yeah. So whatever angle he was working in Des Moines that night, he was going to be the face. Mm-hmm. Um, and, did you, and did was, you attend a lot of live shows? Yeah, once a month. Wow. You, you stayed loyal. That's great. And what was, oh, okay. where did you go? Where did you go mainly? Uh, to Veterans Auditorium in, in Des Moines. Mm-hmm. Um, and to Richwoods High School in uh, Peoria. And... Um, Occasionally, I would. You'll get a kick out of this. I was, I was a college baseball player. So when we traveled on the road at, at the University of Iowa, so when we traveled around the Midwest, uh, my folks. Uh, I was lucky enough to have my folks follow us around, so they would drive to whatever city we were in. And when we played down in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, I had access to their car. And the first thing I would do when we got into a town was check the local paper to see if there was any wrestling while we were going to be there. And occasionally there was. There wasn't in Tulsa. And I grabbed, you know, my mom and dad's car, left them in the hotel, and got four of my buddies, and we went down to the arena that night for the show. Uh, The same thing happened in, believe it or not, Honolulu, Hawaii. (laughs) Although I had to take the bus to the uh, block arena, was was, uh, at Pearl Harbor. And the main event that night was, um, was Harley. Against Tor Kamada, you remember Tor Kamada? Mm, sure. Um, and that was, you know, the Block Arena was so famous, and that was completely different. It, it had the whole Hawaiian vibe because there were some local Hawaiian wrestlers. It was a big, big area for Ch- High Chief Peter Maivia. He was mm. he was often uh, in, involved w- with the Hawaii promo uh, promotion too. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so I've seen. Seen wrestling in a couple of different venues, you know. Not uh, I went to the old uh, Chicago Amphitheater to see Dick the Bruiser against Angelo King Kong Mosca in a chain match. Wow! I've been, I've been to Keele Auditorium in St. Louis to see the NWA. I went to Kansas City once. Um, so yeah, I've I've been to a fair number. That's really cool. Um, just getting back to the Central States. Um, Talk about Harley Race. Um, we did a show with, I think it was Liam Savage a while back, and we talked about great maneuvers 
and I picked as my favorite maneuver of all time, and I mean this with sincerity, Harley Race's slow motion knee drop to the head. Yeah. How he didn't kill his opponent to this day is a mystery. It looks perfect. Am I right? It it looks so perfect, right? It it looked like it hurt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. It it hurt the opponent. The other thing that I thought he he did really well was the was the slow headbutt, the falling headbutt. Yes. Yeah. Um, He did off the top turnbuckle too. Yeah. Yeah, and that also looked legit. You know, I mean. Harley was, and you've heard other people say this, uh, the people that actually know him and, and wrestled with him, he was a legit tough guy. Oh, for sure. And, and um, but I think he also, uh, I also he, he also did a good job of protecting his opponent, too. You know, I, I don't recall anybody ever saying that Harley, unless, you know, unless somebody got out of the line, Harley didn't hurt anybody. Uh, See, that was the science to make it look like a ferocious fight. Yeah. No matter what was going on in the ring. You know what I'm saying? It, it to, to suspend that disbelief. And Harley Race was perfect at that. And I'll just say one more thing. I used to love in the, the slow motion, <laughs> stiff bodied flip over the ropes backwards. Yeah. Like yeah. his whole body would be stiff like a Gumby, and somebody would <laughs> chop him or something, and he would just tumble, boom down into the chairs or down onto a table. Apparently one of those moves late in his career is what ended it really. I think he suffered a really bad injury mm. hitting the floor. I just read that somewhere and I didn't realize that, mm. but um, cause he had had some sort of abdom- abdominal surgery late in his career and he didn't last much longer after the, I guess it was around 89 and then he became a manager in the NWA right. or WCW at that point. Right. But, right. Um, and you know, what's the funny thing is even after he retired, retired, I remember Vader was supposed to take on Sting at some arena. Vader couldn't be there, and so Harley suited up. And people say the match was awesome. Because hmm. it was Harley Race. How could it be bad, you know? He was a professional's professional. He, yeah. If he was physically able to step step in there and lace him up, he, he, he would. You know, two other names I just thought about in the uh, Central States. African-American wrestlers, which were not common uh, at least not in the territories that I was going to. Uh, but someone was highly entertaining in the Central States, Rufus R. Jones. You know oh, that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Rufus was really, really uh, entertaining. They call him the freight train. Right. And he, he always worked as a face, though. He, I don't ever recall that he was a heel. Me either. He was a very popular face, right? Yeah. And he was another guy who was very protective of, of his opponent. I, I've heard. Guys like Roger Kirby and and you know say that Rufus was one of the few people you could trust not to hurt you in the ring. Um, and then there was a very young fellow by the name of George Wells. I don't know whatever happened to him. Oh, he he eventually ended up in the WWE uh, after an expansion period. Okay, right at the beginning, right around that point, eighty four, eighty five. Okay, got a few shots. Um, they pushed him for like 15 seconds, and that was about it. And then he disappeared as fast as he showed up. But I remember him in, in WWF. Yeah. So. Big guy, big, strong fellow. Oh, yeah. Had a, uh, you know, a, a Atlas body. He was, mm-hmm. he was, um, he was put together. One guy I have written down on my list of people that he did see on tape that we haven't mentioned are Dick Murdoch, who came in and out of the territory there. He did, and, and I believe Ed Wiskowski too, who was later Colonel De Beers and yeah, other guys. Easy Ed Wiskowski and and uh, 
Murdoch was kind of like Harley and Andre in that he wasn't there every month. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't recall a lot of TV time with him. But if uh, if 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 Des Moines was working a heel angle, Murdoch could show up for something like that. Um, he would probably spend more time in Kansas City where the television taping was right. than than in some of the outer areas. But uh, and the other guy uh, who was there for quite a bit was a face by the name of Mike George. Right. Um, he was. He must have. And I don't know his history, but. He must have lived in Missouri because he was oftentimes the Missouri state champion and he was, he was big in Missouri, but I don't ever, he may have snuck down into Texas at one point, uh, but I don't remember him anywhere else. I remember late on late. I don't remember when Sabisco won the battle Royal uh, to become AWA world champion, but Mike George was in that match. He was in the AWA in and out. Like it was a working agreement. I'm sure. Yeah. And th- at that point, AW, if you showed up with your boots, you were going to work that night. <laughs> you know? So um, he was he he was in the AWA for about six months, I think. Hmm. And but billed as the Central State Champion. Yes, yes. So obviously I mean, they had a working agreement going there. It, when when Bulldog didn't have the Central States title, uh, Mike George did, uh, and we're working from the from the face angle. Um, and outside of Robley's stable, I don't recall any face tag team champions. I, I'm sure there were, I just don't recall them. I, I don't recall tag teams being a whole, uh, major, uh, part of the Des Moines cards. Mm-hmm. They, they were singles matches. Wow. Do you have any bouts that you saw with your own eyes in your youth that stuck with you all these years? Like that was a great main event or this was a great star or this match was really bloody or violent. You, you have any memories like that of specific, I won't say events because there were no such thing as supercars or pay-per-views or anything like that. But every so often you would, you would go to any arena and see, wow, I'll never forget that match. Are there any matches you never forgot? Not necessarily from the central States, but there was, there was a couple in the AWA and one in the WWA up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I previously mentioned a chain match between Mosca and Dick, the bruiser. That had to be something. That was crazy. Um, there were, uh, I actually, I saw Andre the Giant and Dick the Bruiser in a tag team match against the Valiant Brothers, Jimmy and Johnny, in Springfield, Illinois, which was an hour south of Peoria, but was WWA territory and not uh, AWA territory. Mm-hmm. And I saw him in a high school gymnasium with maybe 100 people, and I happened to be sitting uh, on the aisle that the wrestlers would enter the ring from and I actually shook hands with Andre. So that, oh, memory, yeah. was, that memory was, uh, was more uh, outside the ring than inside the ring. That's probably um, like putting your hand inside a couch, right? Well, Reaching into his hand, right? His, his hand reached up to my elbow. for. <laughs> um, I gotta, I always, you know, but before we go on, I got to hand it to Andre. I have to, the more I look back at his career, I remember seeing him on, the smallest little arenas, and he was an international star at this point. Mm-hmm. But you could see him in a high school. You could see him in a, a like a civic center, not a, not an arena arena. Yeah, he would do that. It, it still boggles my mind to this day because he really was one of the biggest attractions in wrestling his whole career. I still don't know how he did that. 
Well, and then add in the difficulty of a, a man that size traveling the country. Yeah, he did. Um, he was he was very dedicated to the to the craft. I would say. I would have to also wager, no matter where he went, he was the high, highest paid person there. There had to be, had to be. You would think. You would think. Uh, I'm not sure who who would outdraw him, even the champions. That's why. Yeah. You know, obviously, that's why he was never. They never put the belt on him because he. He traveled the world and traveled the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but the wrestlers that I enjoyed the most were were the uh, you know the Crush Crusher, Mad Dog Vachon, Baron Von Raschke, Dick the Bruiser. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I enjoyed in the Central States. I enjoyed Buck Robley. I enjoyed Harley Race quite a bit. It was always a pleasure watching Harley. Um, I'm not sure that I ever saw Ric Flair. Uh, back in the Central States, I you know something he must have appeared there. He must have. I, 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 mu- you know what I'm saying? It just seems yeah. too natural that he wouldn't at least make a few appearances there. I'm yeah. sure he did. It, he must have. Yeah, but uh, you know the bulldog was always uh, entertaining. Um, you know the jobbers have completely left my mind. I don't remember any of the jobbers mm-hmm. from the Central States, like like I do from the AWA. You know. The sodbuster Kenny J and George Stallone, you know, uh, but um, uh, it it was it it was an interesting time at that age when I was a young man to be able to have access to that type of entertainment. And at the time, relatively cheap entertainment. Yes. You were telling me ringside seats were six bucks or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You could go bring and bring your friends. Yeah, exactly. Probably dollar hot dogs and everything else, you know. It was probably, <laughs> oh, God, I used to love them. I'd show up for hot dogs. Dog. Yeah, me too. <laughs> still do it at the Phillies ballpark. <laughs> oh, they still do that? They still well, run they, those they, specials? They, they do it like four or five times a year. It's a great time. I'm in New York. The special would be a $10 hot dog, but that's another story. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but, um, you know, Buck Robley, I used to see pictures of him in the magazines, right? Long before I was working there in the late 70s. He looked like this scrawny, smallish guy with a big facial hair thing and a homemade T-shirt. And I went, how does this guy get over? Years later, I finally see him on videotape and heard him talk. I went, "Yeah, I see how he gets over. Yeah, yeah, he could talk. He he did have the big, scruffy beard. He was a little bigger than, uh, I remember. Yeah, he, bigger yeah, he was than bigger than he photographed. You're exactly yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And he did wear his... You know, I always saw him in a in a gold or a yellow Buck Robley. He wore his own T-shirt to the ring. A Buck right. Robley. Yeah. Um, but yes, didn't he it, did it for a while. Say, don't call me yellow on it. That's exactly what it said. Yeah. Yellow. Yeah. yeah. Don't call me yellow. I love that kind of stuff. I had yeah. forgotten that. That's exactly I, I love the people that made statements on their clothes. You had Ernie Ladd, who for some reason on the back of his ring jacket said, promises, promises. Yeah. <laughs> And George Crybaby Cannon, as a manager, it simply said on the back of his jacket, Cannon, I am right. <laughs> I love that stuff. That's so wrestling, you know? It is. First of and all, you, 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 know, can't, you can't even get a point of reference for what they're talking about, but it's still great. You know what I mean? No, you know that the Cannon, I am right, Something that, that phrase was invented in, in some type of late night alcohol-induced you know, discussion of of the guy sitting around, you know, cutting up and yucking it up, and 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 uh, it means something to those guys. Right. We'll, we'll never know what the reference is. Right. 
And, you know, I love also the guys who would go from territory to territory with things under trunks or boots that had nothing to do with who they were now. Yeah. Like <laughs> Rene Goulet at one point in the ADBA was Sergeant Goulet, right? Right. We comes it back to the WWF in 77, 78, and he's just Rene Goulet from Paris, France or whatever. Yeah. And But he, periodically he would wear the trunks to say Sergeant Goulet on them. He wasn't... <laughs> Yeah, but my friend, my friend joked that he had you know flea collar trunks because you know his sergeant's flea collars and all that stuff. But but no, seriously, he would wear the old trunks as a different character when he wasn't that character. And I always thought that was kind of cool too. You know, he, well, the other thing that I liked, and it, and I believe I saw him in the, I saw him first, I saw this first in the magazines was the pointy curly toes that the Sheik used to wear, the original. Sheik. Oh yeah, yeah. And then when, um, when Kazro Vasiri, who became the Iron Sheik, right. trained in the AWA. So I actually saw him wrestle a couple of times as Kazro Vasiri uh, in the early 70s. Uh, but when he, when he, when I saw him first as the Iron Sheik and he had the, the curly pointy boots, I just mm-hmm. thought those were the coolest things. You know, that, that really adds a little panache to, to what you're trying to do here, what you're trying to sell me. I don't know if they did it in Minneapolis. He was more of a straight-laced character back then, I think. He was he was a heel, but he wasn't, like, vicious. No, uh, he didn't. Have, yeah, he had... Because he, he, he had an Olympic background and all that other stuff. Yeah. I think he was promoted differently. By he the was. time he was the Iron Sheik or the Great Hussein Arab of Iran, which was one of the worst names ever yes. in the WWF, he would load that thing. He would stop and load that boot and pointy. I remember him busting up a gorilla monsoon at the garden once, all over the place. Just to, he just hit him with the edge of that thing, and <laughs> I said, "What could he have possibly put in that boot to make <laughs> monsoon blow a gusher like that?" But it, he did. It was like the reaching into the trunks. Uh, I saw a masked jobber one time in a in a prelim match, reach into his pants and pull out the foreign object, and whack the guy with it. And the guy sold it, you know, the other, the opponent sold it. Mm-hmm. And when he, when the heel went to put the foreign object back in his trunks, he dropped it and it was a rolled up piece of toilet paper. <laughs> and I was sitting right there and I saw the whole thing and I thought, oh man, that's, uh, that's uh, a, giving a, away the secrets there. I happen to know from some friends of mine who were veterans that a, you could take a piece of cardboard that, you know, about the size of a, of a nail file. Just make sure you had your can of spray paint that was gray, because mm-hmm. you could make that sucker look like a steel rod mm-hmm. in no time. Even though you could practically tear it with two fingertips <laughs> all by itself, you know, just probably wiggling it. Yeah, but they could make that thing look like a steel rod. And those were the most. Is it just me, or is that way more entertaining than bashing a guy with a chair twenty times? You tell me. I, I look at. Does he have a foreign object? What is he? What What is that foreign? You know the thousand. Thoughts in your head as you're watching a really dirty wrestler. I miss those days. That was so much better than the over the top. And they go through the table every week on WWE now. It, it's like ta- I'm not a big tables guy. Don't no, how, how often can you go to that well? I, I just don't understand it. Plus, I just think it's too dangerous. So, you know, I just oh yeah, I agree. I think all these guys work way too freaking hard. I I just I have respect for wrestlers. I knew young wrestlers uh, when I was with PWI. And I knew how hard it was just to get one booking. You, you, I mean, I was a musician for 15 years, and you have to give up a lot of your life even to do that. Wrestlers, mm. it's worse. 
I, I knew guys who traveled five states to go to wrestling school or, and live in their cars practically. And, you know, I, I think Al Snow tells a story about buying frozen sandwiches and taping them to his auto manifold <laughs> and then go to the next state. And by the time he got to, let's say, Idaho, the sandwich would be hot. You know, <laughs> you know, this is the stuff these cats put up with to learn the trade and be good wrestlers. How can you not respect people for that? I'm telling you, it's the hardest thing there is. I still think it's harder than baseball. There's no draft. You have to talk your way into it. It's it takes a rare breed to be a wrestler. I still even today it, they just have to be a rare breed because you yeah. know you're putting your butt on the line every time you get into a ring. Yeah. Speaking of foreign objects, did Ernie Ladd ever reach in his trunk and pull out anything but his thumb? You know, we were. You must be psychic. <laughs> All right, fans, I'm going to show you what a schlub I am in my old age. Last night, I am bowling. I'm in a bowling league on Wednesday nights in Garden City, New York. Hi, team. Okay. <laughs> There's a guy on the other team named Andy, right? Great guy. Mets fan. And on his right hand, he had a thumb sock, a black bowling thumb sock. And I, looked, I pointed at him and said, Ernie Ladd, that thing is loaded. <laughs> As God is my witness, this happened to me just last night. And we went on and on like that. He eventually grabbed me and jabbed me with it and all that stuff, you know. But uh, yeah, I don't think he ever pulled anything out either. I didn't I could never see it. I never saw I never saw anything in his hand. But But know. no, but once once he went through those ministrations and then jabbed somebody, they would practically fly out of the ring. Because you got a six foot nine strong guy jabbing the yeah. guy's throat with that thing. The other thing that always fascinated me was the little, um, and back in the day, I don't think they do it anymore, where the wrestlers, before they before they locked up for the first time, they'd come to the center of the ring, and the ref would check the bottom of their boots and their and their waistband and to see if they had any foreign objects on them. Mm -hmm. You remember that? They did it every match, yeah. Okay. How come nobody ever found the pencil that Abdullah used to bring into the match <laughs> every single time? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? It was in his boot. Check yeah. his boot. Yeah. Cyclona either. <laughs> George Steele either. Yeah. I'm thinking of all the guys who use foreign objects and right. The Sheik. The Sheik, yeah. I mean, I'm uh, Abby, you said, um who are the who were the other foreign object masters back in the day? Don't, I think we named the main ones there, to be honest yeah. with you. But every once in a while somebody pull out some some real brass knuckles or what looked like real brass knuckles mm -hmm. uh and crown somebody with it. Uh uh but yeah, it was it was Gimmicky, uh, of course. But, uh, I want to know how some of these guys, they wouldn't. Cicluna at one point had something that looked like a giant church key can opener that we'd use, you know, with the attachments on it. <laughs> a kitchen can opener. And I'm thinking, where's he even stuffing that thing? How did he, how did he do that? The other thing that used to amaze me, Kevin Sullivan and his heel had the golden spike. Mm -hmm. And he would take the thing out of his trunks, but the thing was wider than he was. Where was it? <laughs> I mean, this is the un this is the real science of wrestling. How do they do these things? Such wonderful sleight of hand, I'm telling you. I I think, and then you know what we're reminiscing about, what we're talking about, is just the entertainment value that we got for our dollar back in the right. day. Right. You know, it it was it was everybody gets the opportunity to choose how they spend their disposable income, but as a kid. You know, if I if I wasn't buying uh, the, the after magazines, I was saving my money for the monthly wrestling ticket. Right, that's, that's what I did. 
Oh, early on in this silly podcast, I, my my best friend in school named Rick Stickles was his name, Great and name. we walked to another county to buy wrestling tickets because <laughs> they were at, well, we were in Greene County and wrestling was coming to Hudson in Columbia County. We really wanted to go, but his car was in the shop. He was driving. He was sixteen or whatever. He says, "You want to walk over to the sporting goods store and buy?" I said, "Do I?" <laughs> and we were kids that didn't even phase us. I think we walked twenty miles total. Wow. <laughs> didn't phase us. You know, yeah. we were playing sports and stuff like that in those days. We wanted yeah. to see that card. I remember the main event was Dean Ho versus Big Cowboy Bob Donkum. Wow. And they had another match with Gurria against um, Kilikowski. Okay. You know, it was a high school card, so it was yeah. odd matchups. There was no feud or anything like that. But, um, yeah, we had a good time. We didn't regret it. No. And besides, his car was fixed by the time we actually went to the match. So yeah, that's cool. where that helped. I used to have to borrow cars from my buddies in in Ames to drive to Des Moines for the for the matches because I didn't have a car, but I, I would beg and borrow and steal whatever I could to get to to drive to get that half hour drive from Ames to, to uh, Des Moines. Did you ever buy tickets for people to get them to drive you? Uh, nobody ever drove me. They they pretty much would let me have their car. Every once in a while, you'll get a kick out of this. I thought that. Um, one of the ways to get dates was to invite girls to go to wrestling with me. And what I found out was that they didn't really care to go to wrestling with me. They cared about me taking them to dinner before wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's right. You, you nailed it. That's <laughs> funny. I, you know, after the first couple of dates, uh, the people in my circle caught on. It's like, don't go with you know, Mike to dinner because he's going to take you to wrestling afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been worse. The worst thing to be complained about, I'll tell you that. Yeah, but, yeah. but I will say this, and I'm God love everybody out there, but I, I mean this just as an objective person who was there at the time. From when I was a wrestling fan in 1970 to about 1978, when I was old enough to drive and do all these other things, wrestling was female repellent back then. There oh, yeah. weren't a whole lot of female wrestling fans. Absolutely. If you told people you're into wrestling, they would go, ew, you know, they weren't into it. Because it was gritty back then. And like it was like seeing a boxing match in an arena or a small club setting. There were yeah. bleachers, there were hot dogs, there was beer. That was it. Yeah. And it wasn't fancy. And it wasn't clean looking. You know, it had a wrestling had a grit to it. I don't think a lot of women appreciate it. And I'm not putting them down for it, but no. I'm just saying. There weren't a lot of lady wrestling fans back then. It really shows weren't. you how, how smart I was at that age when it came to women. I thought that was a good date night. <laughs> <laughs> but was it? No, no, no. Tell, tell us the truth, Mr. Morris. To give us your dating tips, did it ever pay off? Never did. <laughs> but you got I, to see I, the wrestling. I, yeah. I, 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 could, I could get new girlfriends to go once, and that was it. Uh, but uh, no, it, it never did pay off. <laughs> Somehow I remember this. I used to work in a drugstore. And around 78, 77, the whole bunch of us, the manager of the store, the assistant manager, and all the help, we were all in the fifth row in Albany sitting, watching a wrestling cart. And I remember the women hated it. Yeah. <laughs> they were, oh, they're stomping the ring when they hit. That's what makes all that noise. I said, Shh, I'm watching this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't give it away. Nobody around you knows. That's right. Yeah, just just enjoy it. You like the popcorn? I'll get you another popcorn. You know, one of those. Yeah. But, but no, I, it, it, it's, it's, and now women, are, you know, so I had, had a young lady, fantastic young lady named Kimmy Sokol who works the conventions and 
She does some smaller territory stuff. She's 22 and loves it. And there's a lot of college-age kids now, females especially, that love it. The whole the whole demographic for wrestling from the time you and I were kids to now is totally different. And I, I don't mind that at all. I think that's great, to be honest with you. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I guess I was just going to – I don't want to go from old to new. I don't watch it as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. But I did watch the recent um, – Return of the Rock and and his heel turn. Okay. And I, I was kind of fascinated by that because he's built his career post-wrestling as this likable character. Every A lot of things that he does, movies, TV, whatever, um, he's, a, he's a likable character. And I wondered how he was going to pull off being a heel again. But I really thought, I, I my sense when I watched the 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 promo this last week was that um they bought into it but they knew they realized they realized what was going they realized it was a show they were seeing i'm not sure if you take the same character with the same charisma and put them back in the 70s mm-hmm. i'm not sure that the that the people would have bought it Does that makes a sense? good point yeah but you know there was a mitigating factor with this heel turn too what had happened was that I'm, I, I'm, sh- maybe, I'm sure you realize this, but maybe you don't. I'll just explain it. The fans wanted Cody Rhodes versus Roman Reigns, right? To repeat from last year, yeah. And I guess it was a SmackDown where he kind of Cody kind of gives the match to The Rock when he came there, and they stared off, and that was the end of the show. I'd say it met with 65% audience revulsion. They wanted that Cody. They didn't want Rock Reigns. They wanted Cody Reigns. So they had to f- figure out a way to make that real, to make it work, to switch it back. And I think the only way they could do it is to somehow have Cody at a press conference, a televised press conference they have, um, insulted the whole family, which kind of made The Rock and Reigns closer. So now they're in cahoots because they're blood. And now Cody's the... the, the rival of both you know both of them so i they they did an amazing turnaround because the the reaction to a a not cody roman reigns was was overwhelming i haven't seen anything like it in a long time the fans didn't want rock versus reigns when you you would think they would want that it seems natural that's not what the fans wanted in this case so they rewrote it and fixed it well i mean that's kind of a hats off to triple h and the and the creative team for, for given one for giving the people what they want. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. think I, I just wonder how that conversation went when, when it became evident that maybe Rock needed to do a heel turn to save this angle somehow. I wonder if he balked it all. Hard to say. Yeah, and it, I can't even get a feel right now for how much the Rock is back. Is he back, yeah. back? Is he kind of back? Is he just going to be a mouthpiece? Is he going to work? You know, I, I, can't, I can't get a handle on where they're going with him. Um, people Are say, well, talking? he's only wrestling again because his film career is fading. Since when? I thought he's doing fine. I, I don't see any evidence of that. He's but, all over the place. He's, he's, you yeah. know, he's a pitch man. He's TV. He's films. Um, I wonder, are you surprised that he, at the reaction he's gotten after being out for such a long time? No, 
you know, he came back a while, a few weeks before that and did a thing with Jinder Mahal where he was pure face. And mm-hmm. people went nuts. The people went crazy for it. Just like always. Yeah. And then he came back doing a heel shtick the last time we saw him. And people went nuts for that too. Yeah. He just has it. I think he can afford being a heel now and not have any repercussions for his career or his popularity. I think people like to see him. I think he's got that odd charisma as he's insulting the heck out of you. You know, it's it's like, you know, he, he's just, well, people grew to love him because he was such a snarky smart ass. Yeah. In the yeah. original iteration back in the day. Right. right. 25 years ago, whatever it is at this point. Gosh, time flies, doesn't it? Yeah. But um, yeah, I think he's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. Let me ask you this, and and I, I don't think we talked about this the first time, and I, I've kind of wondered about this, and it has to do with basically when when you and I were watching it as kids and growing up, the heels got the heat, and that's that's how it was designed. Do you ever remember cheering for the heel back in the day? Me? Yeah. All the time. Really? Just me personally? Well, or, or crowds in general. Oh, no, not crowds in general. No, never, okay. never. Me, yes. I was, I was, <laughs> I remember seeing Graham win by fouling uh, Putski at one point, pinned him, and the guy next to me in front of me, I was like, how could you root for that guy? He just, he just hit him low. Yeah. I said, the ref didn't see it. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, you stink. You know, and my fan was getting mad at me for liking superstar Billy Graham, but I thought Billy Graham had that anti-charisma that worked. And I liked him. I liked Secluded. There were a lot of heels that I really liked. But, you know, I didn't, you know, I'm, a, I'm a funny wrestling fan. I'm a funny sports fan. I don't have a lot of heroes. I just like the action and the the athleticism more than any of this other stuff, you know? I still watch baseball rapidly to this day, but I don't have any heroes or anything like that or favorite players. I enjoy the game within the game, the statistics, all that kind of thing. So I don't know if it makes any sense when it comes to wrestling, but I looked at it a little differently even when I was a kid. Well, I, 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 where I'm headed with this is the first time I noticed it was with Stone Cold Steve Austin, who, you know, basically was a heel. And, and the fans determined they were going to start cheering for the heel. And he really didn't change his stick, he w- but he went from getting booed to getting cheered. And I don't. I'm not sure why that happened or if it could have happened in 1978. You know, if, you know, if Flair came into a territory as a heel, I don't recall him being able to do anything without an outright face turn that would, that the, that the crowd would turn him face on Mm -hmm. its own. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I do. I absolutely know what you're talking about. Yeah. When, when, you're supposed to start cheering because of his actions. Yeah. But now the fans are so weird now, to be honest with you. They read an angle recently in AEW, and I can't remember because I don't watch it a whole lot, to be honest with you. But somebody told me that somebody broke into somebody else's house and threatened a baby in a nursery, and that got him over as a face. I got him over as a face? Got him over as a face. And I'm like, whoa, talk about. Not know what's going to work. <laughs> you know? Well, that's actually that. That seems to me to be. But that says a lot more about there. society than it does about yeah, wrestling. Yes, exactly right, and that's a little disturbing, isn't it? Though yeah. I'm not making this up. I just somebody else was talking to me about it on the show. 
Mm. Did somebody, so, and I'm like, uh, really? <laughs> I, um, I do not like it when things get that. And this is another problem, particularly with middling organizations like Impact and MLW. They do this weird psychological stuff. Doesn't work for me at all. Has no, I have, I find no place for that in wrestling. You can't you just put on a, a good match with two talented people and, and let them go. Yeah. And does everything have to be a big build all the time? You can't have this guy want to beat this other guy for a belt or just to proclaim that he's better. Now you have to have six weeks of psychological gobbledygook going on between the two guys before they can even step in the ring against each other. It's too much. Get on with it. Probably explains why I don't watch it as faithfully. As but am I right about that? It, it's yeah. like I said, they, they have to build a psychology between the two guys week after week after week after week. And somebody will foul somebody in some weird, completely out of the arena incident somewhere or something backstage where they'll dump a you know buffet table over somebody. And I'm like, can't we just can't we just jump in the ring, please? please? Bob, it's our fault. Our fault as writers. As soon as you allow the writers uh, to go in and write and, and, and write the the the, uh, the angle rather mm-hmm. than letting the wrestlers call it in the ring. That's what happened. It was the right. It's the writers. We messed it all up for uh, for for some of the angles. I never wrote for anybody. I tried. Yeah, I can't tell you the number of times <laughs> when WWE was looking for writers mm-hmm. that I applied. I have never heard crickets louder than those. I'm telling you, it was. <laughs> The response was the most underwhelming thing. I'd, I'd never got a bite, never got a nibble. And I know there's people there who know who I am. That's that's the weird part about it. Hey, if the guys from the wrestling magazines can't get jobs as writers, yeah, I don't no know. kidding. No kidding. Well, there's the problem. They don't want wrestling people. They want TV people. Yeah, that is the problem. And that's the truth. Yeah. I, I look at who their, their the top writers are, and they, they have succeeded in other genres other than wrestling. They want somebody who can pace television and keep it, keep the continuity going. And I understand that because that's the way of the world. And let's face it, the whole sport's different. The whole yeah. sport's different now. It just is. Is it for the better? You know, I after talking to Kimmy Sokol, I'll say this. Young people like the wrestling today. Some of them love it dearly because this is what they know. This is what they've learned. This is what they watch. This is what's on. So how can I blast somebody for looking at something current and enjoying it? I listen to the radio and it all sounds like two trash cans banging together and I mm. shut it off, but other people are enjoying it. So who am I to say it's bad, yeah. right? Each to their own. Life is too short to complain about what other people like. Yeah. And, you and, know, I, I'm, and I'm a watch fan. I was on a watch forum and guys would get into, into arguments. This is why I'm not on watch forums anymore. You know, wristwatch, I collect a lot of wristwatches and it's yeah. like, you know, they argue about what brands they were buying, and this sucks, and this is good, and this one is great, and that one's too expensive. Who needs that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I want to learn about how the, the watch runs, what the movement is, where who made it, who designed it. No, they're complaining about it's too expensive. That's not fun. So I am not gonna I am not gonna rain it. Anybody's parade if they like modern wrestling. First of all, they're keeping the old sport alive, which is great. Yeah. And it looked well, we have our own share of controversies going on right now. Yeah. So, and every time one of these bad periods happens, somehow wrestling stays alive. You know, and I'm glad to see that. And uh, you know, I will, if I will say this, I, I'm glad I grew up in the era that I did and got to watch the entertainment that I got to watch. Me too. I, I wouldn't trade that. I wouldn't trade that. That's why this show is. This is the outdated wrestling hour. Yeah. I am sure that it, there may be 25 year olds who switched on and have shut off at about minute 
14. I don't mm-hmm. care. We're here to, as an appreciation of the stuff that made us happy when we were kids, right? Right. You know, and as adults too, me and Peter's worked in the business. So it was like, and after, you know, Bill too, right? Yeah. yeah. How often do you see those guys? I know you're in the same general vicinity, right? Craig and I see each other quite a bit. We, we share an interest in music and, and, um, you know, we socialize from time to time. Bill, I don't see quite as often, but it's always an adventure when, when you you get together (laughs) with Bill after and, and, uh, he's just so entertaining to be around. Well, if you see the boys, tell them I said hi. And I will. Before we leave, let us leave with this. You made a wonderful point on Facebook recently in that what is going on with the price of concert tickets? Yeah. My gosh. Yeah. Mediocre stuff with the worst seats in the house for 180 bucks. Yeah. I can't believe my eyes. Is, is this the Taylor Swiftization of everything now? I don't know that you can blame it all on her. I mean, no, you can't, but the. the the uh, I was just talking to my sister in law last night, and she got James Taylor tickets. Um, the the face value was one hundred and sixty two dollars uh, per ticket, and she ended up paying two hundred per ticket with the fees. So that's almost eighty dollars in fees for two tickets. Uh, I think Ticketmaster is, is is a lot to blame for that, but mm-hmm. I will say this: uh, I'm not. We're probably not going to go to as many concerts this year because, you know the. The hundred thirty last year the norm was about one hundred thirty bucks. This year the norm's one hundred eighty bucks. Well, so he, it just keeps going up. But pre pandemic, I guarantee you the ticket to James Taylor could be had for seventy five bucks. I guarantee you that because I, no, I, I know because I was there. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. So you know, I don't know what to say other than you know our musical favorites are as old as we are or older, and let's face it, seventy five percent of them are not going to be what they once were when you go to right. see them. In about three weeks, I got tickets to see <laughs> Bachman Turner Overdrive. Oh, I'd love to see him, actually. Now, here's the deal, though. Fred Turner retired. Right. He's alive, but he retired. He gives the tour his blessing. Right. And I happen to know that Randy Bachman now plays sitting down on a stool because he's too old to stand. And, right. But I also got some reviews from my friends up in Canada say they, do, they still do a killer show, no matter who the others are. The other two bu- brothers are dead. They both right. died, the Bachman brothers. Yeah. And I'm a big admirer of Randy Bachman. I just think I've, I've met him several times and he remains one of my musical heroes. He's he's way better as a guitar player than people give credit for. I'll put it that way. But even that show, okay, this is this is at um, what used to be the Westbury Music Fair. They now call it the NYCB Theater at Westbury. Okay. Even that, the best seats are $190. I, I'm shaking my head. I got yeah. in, but I didn't pay that. I'll, I'll put it that way. I mean, it's like, and I noticed there's a tiering system everywhere now. It's not just, you can, you all sit over there, you're all 50 bucks. No, the first five rows are 190. The next rows are 110. Next 15 rows are 85. And in the back, you, if you can, if you can get them, they're $50 a piece. Am yeah. I right? You see this all over the place now. You know who started this? MLB. That's who started it. The tiered yeah. pricing yeah. system. Yes. Yes. I don't know what to say. We'll, we'll just go to fewer concerts because they're just, some of them are getting out of our range. Hey, know? there's good music in the clubs too, right? There is. Mm-hmm. And Philly's got, got a great local scene. And I'm, it does. Philly's yeah. got a terrific music scene. They always did. I love Philly for, for its music scene. Ladies and gentlemen, his second appearance here, it's Mike Morris from beautiful Pennsylvania. Mike, what a pleasure to have you back here. I've been meaning to do this for a long time. 
I hope you come back periodically if you'd be so kind. Uh, you know a lot about stuff, man. I, you, your memories are always spot on. You've got a terrific steel trap mind when it comes to the old days. So I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Bob. I enjoy, uh, I enjoy our conversations and, and talking about uh, things that we mutually enjoyed as kids. Oh, and before I let you go, I always do this. If you want people to find you, where can they find you? Uh, I'm on Facebook uh, with my real name, uh, and I have a website uh, called The Vinyl Dialogues. So it's www.vinyldialogues.com, uh, and you will see uh, my books there about uh, the making of music in the 1960s and 70s as told by the artists who made them. So interviews with uh, a lot of the 70s, 60s, and 70s artists. Yes, we haven't hit on this. Mike remains a journalist with a capital J. Check his stuff out because this man knows his stuff, not just about wrestling, but about music too. Mike, I had a blast. I hope you did too. Thanks, Bob. So the central states and a lot of other stuff with the great Mike Morsh. I'm so glad he can make it back on the program. He's looking good. He's feeling good. And I hope you all are too out there. We got a lot of cool stuff, some really interesting uh Interviews coming up. We got a wrestler coming up. We've got an author coming up. We have some famous offspring coming up. We have, let's see here, me. Well, I, I don't want to, you wouldn't listen to that, but, <laughs> but anyway, we got a lot of fun things coming to the outdated wrestling hour in the weeks and months ahead. We'll be here, like I say, most Fridays when the show is released to the podcast world. And we hope you continue to uh, listen. Once again, I want to thank everybody for the response to the 1970s 100. I want to thank Steve Generelli and John McAdam and everybody else. What a time that was. Actually, the show's been doing great. I could not ask for more. If I never get any more successful than this, it's fine. We are doing really good in a packed field of wrestling podcasts. I see The Undertaker himself. Mark Holloway has a new podcast. I see Vice has a new podcast about the uh, Dark Side of the Ring series, I guess. And on and on they come, you know, wrestlers and moneyed big company podcasts. That's fine. I like our niche. I think we talk about stuff that not everybody else talks about. And uh, I think we're having fun. How about you? So in any event, we hope you come back next week. But first, some uh, commercial announcements before we let you go home. Um, we have a new theme song, Funkerific. Once again, the fantastic Kevin McLeod came up with that. He's done music for TV and radio and all kinds of arts, and he's an amazing guy. Find him at uh, incompetech.com. Just an amazing talent. You've seen his name in a thousand movies and TV shows, I'm sure, and thousands more to come. Tremendous musician and keyboardist, Mr. Kevin McLeod. Our website, outdatedwrestlinghour.buzzsprout.com. I'm not going to yell today, I promise. You can hear every one of our podcasts on that one site. If you would rather listen to it that way than go hunting out an app, you can do that. I recommend it, too. It sounds great there. You can also learn about the Outdated Wrestling Hour fan club. For a nominal fee, you can join in our uh, Zoom-style meetings, take part in other uh, activities. I do give away a prize in every meeting that we have, and um, we just have some fun. And you'll help build the show and perpetuate it into the future. And I value and cherish every single one of you who has joined. New members, old members, doesn't matter. Uh, the fact that you, you turn your ear our way, I really appreciate it very much. 
So you can learn about the Outdated Wrestling Hour fan club at outdatedwrestlinghour.buzzsprout.com. If you'd like to write this show, it's real simple. Outdated Wrestling at Gmail. Outdated Wrestling at Gmail. My main social media place is Facebook. I'm at other places too. Don't bother. <laughs> Facebook is my jam. Um, it's been really helpful and it helped me connect with a lot of old friends, both in and out of the wrestling business of late. So if you want to find me, find me on Facebook. I'm singing with BB King on my page. How many people you know can say that? Hmm. So there. <laughs> so in any event, my name is Bob Smith. I used to be with Pro Wrestling Illustrated Magazine, The Wrestler Inside Wrestling, Sports Review Wrestling, and now on down the line. Working with great people like Stu Sachs and Craig Peters and Bill Apter during that era, you know, the 90s, the 80s. I miss them like crazy. But we don't have to miss them. We still have our memories and we're here to reminisce and pay a tribute to classic professional wrestling on the Outdated Wrestling Hour. We hope you come back and join us again next week. We got a lot of more fun lined up for you. Until then, this is Bob Smith saying, uh, take care of yourself, take care of each other. And as Ringo Starr would say, peace and love, y'all. Thank you.